Imagine, you just got home from work, dinner is ready, wine is chilled, and your man has offered you 15 minutes of heaven in the form of a foot massage. And then he says, Your spray tanning session is now complete. What just happened? You found your escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. Take time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan and take that feeling with you wherever you go. Get up to $25 off your first month featuring Australian gold. Perfect man, not included. And welcome to the very first episode of Pod Save the UK. I'm Nish Kumar. And I'm Coco Khan. And we're talking politics. Finding out what's going on, what's going wrong. And asking, surely Britain can do better than this. What qualifies us? I'm a journalist, he's a comedian, but like everyone, we've got skin in the game. Yeah, politics is not a spectator sport. We've got a vote, we've got free speech, so let's use it. And we have been arguing about politics for many, many years now, haven't we, Nish? Yeah, some would say for too long. So with a variety of special guests with big brains and big ideas, we're finally getting the chance to step up and try and fix UK politics. Yeah, so uh, cool, no pressure. Very relaxed. So, Nish, what does the UK need saving from this week? Well, it needs saving from the £100 million coronation of King Charles III and it needs saving from politicians spouting racist rhetoric. Okay, so it being our first episode, introducing ourselves to the people in our transparent, no-bullshit way, let's put our cards on the table. All right, done. (laughs) Done. Okay, I'll put my cards on the (laughs) table. I'll put my cards on you. My most aggressive blackjack dealer in Vegas. You first. Your go. I'll put my cards on the table and say, I I think people who know my work are pretty clear on my politics, yeah. but I think possibly it's even more unimaginative than the worst character of me could imagine. Okay. Like I am, I am 100% Labour voter. Uh, I I don't know that I've ever been fully happy about it, but I am a 100% Labour voter. I have a a spotless track record. I think that... But what I'm trying to do is set it in context of where I come from, because people in the press have often written about me like I'm this sort of rabid left-wing maniac. You have to understand, my family is from Kerala in India, which has consistently elected Marxist representation. So in the context of my family history... I am basically David Cameron. Like, in the context of my family history, that where people have, like, stood for election as communist MPs, you know, as, far, as long as I'm not sort of living in the trees with a Maoist militia, I'm basically a neoliberal shill. <laughs> I'm trying to set people in context. If you think I'm too left-wing, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> I mean... It's funny hearing you talk about it because in practice, I'm the same. I'm also a lifelong Labour voter, but, you know, I don't really like that label. I really like to, I like to spice it up at local election anyway, you know. Yeah, I do like the label. I'm close-minded. Yeah. I'm happy to talk, describe You don't even have that moment in the booth. You're like, oh, hey, Green. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's different. Call me. <laughs> I think I might be the most close-minded man in Britain. Lib Dems, you up? <laughs> I would never take that to the Lib Dems. Anyway, but the thing about being a lifelong Labour voter, I don't know about you, I'm exhausted, mate. Yeah. I'm drained. Yeah. The roller coaster. Oh, they get me. They love me. I've been betrayed. It's too much. I have trust issues now. I. It's why they call it the Labour Party, because it's hard work. <laughs> 
And do you know what? Do you know what all I... I keep thinking about this. Like, what do I really want from a party? What do I want from politics? And I just want a system that you can just forget about. Like, yeah, sure. it's working. We don't need to think... We, they're going to do what they said they were going to do. They're going to do it well. Great, I can focus on the football, on art, on family, on nature. I just don't need to... You know, if you go to the doctor and you say, oh, you're right, doc, really feeling my kidneys <laughs> real bad. And then you'll obviously be like... You've had a few too big nights out, mate. <laughs> Something's going it's wrong. Very revealing of your last <laughs> You shouldn't feel these organs. Like yeah. in the, the body of Britain, the organ of politics is failing. We're all just walking around being like, I'm feeling Westminster real bad today. <laughs> oh, my Westminster's real hurting. And I just think it just we just want it to be functioning and gone. I mean, I think that's 13 years of conservative rule, 13 years of underinvestment, 13 years of mismanaging the economy, 13 years of not enough money for schools and hospitals. I mean, I think as much as as many problems as I have with the Labour Party, I've got about 50 times the amount with the Conservative Party. And like after more than a decade of this nonsense, I think the country desperately needs a change. So uh, what you're saying is we're here, pod save, Gallstone Britain. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're doing this week, right? <laughs> so, Coco, down to business. Yeah. What's the first thing that UK needs saving from this week? For me, doubtless, the monarchy. I, You can't move for the coronation at the moment, I mean, and it's, it's only Wednesday. <laughs> What's going to happen by Saturday? And look, I don't want to be joyless. You know I love camp things. And I mean, oh, so camp. Operation Golden Orb. Operation Codenames, I'm not meant to tell you what it is, but it's so camp. They're like, it's a golden orb. That's what it is. Sounds like an Austin Powers movie. But I've been thinking about, genuinely thinking about whether I want to participate in it. And I did a list. I did a pro and a con. Okay, yeah. The con, very practical of you. I know, I know. The con list was very long. <laughs> but the main thing was about the one rule for them, one rule for us. I just think that is very, very toxic. They have exempted themselves from over a hundred laws, mainly to protect their wealth and their power, yeah. to let them get away with stuff that we can't even find out what they're getting away with because they keep it all very behind closed doors. The Queen hid money to avoid paying taxes. Yeah. The Queen, she doesn't need to do that. I mean, the King is quite literally a billionaire landlord. Yeah. I mean, as brands go. So yeah, I think I'm finding it hard to, to participate. And Nish, I know you love the monarchy. You know. You've I'm been there, coronation the quiche, baking away. Yeah, I mean, first of all, congratulations on finding a worse food than coronation <laughs> chicken. I, I mean, in a way, they've done themselves proud. Do you know I it's th- got broad beans in it? What? That's nuts for a quiche. I mean, the whole thing looks like diarrhea in pastry, but <laughs> it's what I would say about the monarchy is I, I, I sort of have issues with them historically. I think if you're a person whose family comes from a previously colonised country, you will always have mixed feelings about the royal family. But if I'm being completely honest, for a lot of my life, and as somebody who is interested in politics, yeah. I've sort of felt them to be kind of irrelevant. But I think in the last few years, the events and the actions of members of the royal family have chipped away at my apathy. Look, I think the disclosures that have been published in The Guardian very recently about uh, the amounts of money that the royal family has been hoarding and the active efforts to ensure that we can't find out how much money they actually have is a real problem. And listen, let's not be around the bush here. There is the whole Prince Andrew question. Mm. Now, that is going to chip away at your faith at this institution, that it has still lined up behind a man who, 
let's be absolutely clear about this, is at best pedo-adjacent. Prince Andrew is at best pedo-adjacent. And so we're now... The best case scenario is, well, he's mates with international sex offenders. That's the best case scenario. So I think with all of this, it's I've sort of been pushed more in the direction of uh, republicanism, I think. I know what you mean. Like that... The fact that they're always talked about as being, oh, they're just harmless. It's just decoration. They're just like very, very, very expensive bunting. Like, I, <laughs> that is part of the power. That is the lack of transparency and accountability. And that is kind of a problem. We expect more from, from the public servants. Yeah. Also, can I just also add on top of all of this? It doesn't seem fun to be in the royal family. <laughs> it seems really, really depressing. We all read Harry's book, by which I mean... We all listened to extracts from the audiobook that we were sent on Twitter by people under the caption, oh my God, I can't believe he put this in a book. Why did no one stop him? But it doesn't sound like a particularly joyful existence. The royal family at this point sounds like SeaWorld. And I sort of wonder whether it's time to free Shamu because we've got all this institution and this family that we kind of keep in a gilded cage and their lives seem incredibly sad. We've sort of bred them so they, you know, they're all like those dogs that can't breathe properly and we leave them in this kind of... Is that why Prince Andrew can't swear? Oh my God, it's all making sense now. Yeah, is it possible that Prince Andrew's had his ability to sweat bread out of him? We don't know. These are the questions that we need to answer. We need more transparency for the royal family. But they, we keep them in these gilded cages. And then the worst thing about it is we absorb so much content about how sad they all are. This sick series of a Netflix show where the premise is essentially sad in it. And we all sit there watching we go, if only there's something we could do. Maybe it's time to let them roam free. I mean, I don't know, I sound really bitter, but I mean, how sad can you be when you and all your closest aristocratic friends own nearly half of the land <laughs> in Britain? But okay, I don't know, cool man. Uh, what do the public think, Nish? Well, look, uh, public polling around all of this, it, it paints a kind of picture of potentially declining support for the monarchy, but at the same time, the broad feeling still uh, is sort of apathy. Um, a poll in The Guardian said 45% of respondents said it should be abolished, uh, was not important or not very important. So it doesn't mean that 45% favour abolition. Yeah. They just think that either it should be abolished or it's just not particularly important to them. Um on the other hand, a poll for Panorama, the BBC show Panorama, showed 58% of people preferred the monarchy to an elected head of state, which was only supported by 26%. The most important divide is age. Over 65s are most likely to be supportive of the monarchy at 78%. And 18 to 24-year-olds was the least likely, and only 32% of them backed the monarchy. Do you know what my mum sort of likes the monarchy? My mum doesn't. Yes. I think in common with a lot of South Asian women, my mum loves Diana. I remember when Diana died, I was a child and I was watching Nickelodeon and they had like a rolling black banner at the bottom being like, kids, wake your parents up, wake up. And I went up and I was like, mum, Diana died. And she was genuinely really, really moved. When I say my mum likes the monarchy, I think she just likes that they're a sort of very big family where they have quite prescriptive roles around hierarchy and authority, which is basically an Asian family. So, and my mum, like, she relates to that very, very much. But um, I'm not surprised to hear that the young ones don't. Okay, 
So let's go bold and say that we are going to do away with the monarchy. But how? What would a roadmap to a republic look like? And what's the process? And also, what sort of country would we end up being left with? Would it make the UK fairer, make it more equitable? So we're actually going to ask an expert, someone who actually knows some things about things. Uh, we've got Professor Amelia Hadfield, who's the head of politics at Surrey University and a friend of Pod Save the UK. Hi, Amelia. Hello, Nish. It's great to be here. Hi, Coco. Hi. Well, you've done all the hard work for us, which we love. Um, <laughs> you've mapped out a road to the Republic. But first thing is... On this podcast, we like to be honest about who we are. Where do you stand, Amelia? Good. Um, <laughs> honesty is always the best policy, especially in, in politics. Um, I don't think I'm ideologically aligned with it, with one key position. Um, I'd like to sort of lay out the framework, if I can, on, on the basis of political science, a bit of history, um, and sort of getting a sense of maybe the, the, the current zeitgeist. Can I use that word? How are people yeah. feeling right yeah. now um, yeah. in terms of, you know, uh, we're knee deep in, in golden orbs. You pointed this out just earlier. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> coronation fever. But just to, to reset, um, what has to happen to to get uh, republicanism front and centre as a political reality yeah. here in the United Kingdom? Well, first of all, it's going to be a shift of attitudes, isn't it? It's going to be a clear change in terms of how people are thinking. And I mean shift. I, I don't just mean a nudge. Um, we've already seen one change, obviously, from the late Queen to the present King. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple more coming, I would have thought, in the next 40, 50 years, depending on how long people live. Charles to William, William to George. Um, and then there's this overarching key functional question, whether an inherited or an unelected individual should continue here in the United Kingdom um, as the official head of state. So that's, that's the first thing that has to happen. People's mindsets need to shift. Uh, but then you need you need an opening gambit. I think you have to have uh, a, a suggestion um, as to what that reality is going to look like. You have to make a small change that leads to a bigger one. And a good example I can give you is Australia that uh, announced the king will not appear on their $5 banknote. Reminder, <laughs> they use dollars. This is important. Um, and, and that was accepted. So that's a small change that's um, a small, but uh, I think quite a quite a significant one, and then getting that change picked up by a small political group. So single issue parties are incredibly important. Uh, they can pick up a one idea, one key idea. They can run with it, um, and then they can nudge again. They nudge larger parties. Um, they nudge them hard to think about it, consider it, and then before you know it, a given idea has sort of morphed uh, and and sort of emerged firmly into the national narrative. And don't forget, that's exactly how Brexit took form and how Brexit ultimately was carried through to its political uh, conclusion. Um, And I'm sorry to say this, but certainly in this country, politically, uh, you would probably need a referendum. I'm using the R word to ensure that the government... That's the the last thing we want to hear. I'm I'm so sorry. If you told people that you were giving them an R word they didn't want, they'd pray for rectal probe. (laughs) Of a referendum. I think all of us would niche, to be honest. Um, other things that might change people's mindsets, and we can certainly talk about this, um, scandals. Scandals, obviously, fun mm-hmm. to read, but they provoke strong social disapproval. That can be a litmus test to, to changes. Um, and well, then we've if, had a doozy of one. Yeah, right. we, I say what you will about Prince Andrew. The guy delivered a scandal. <laughs> he certainly did. He certainly did. Um, the question is, is it just individual uh, behaviour? Are we just upset with him? Or can it dislodge the core structure of the monarchy itself? Can it actually shove out the crown in Parliament? If it's that big, then you are looking at a complete and fundamental uncoupling, if you like, of the kind of system, governmental system that we have here in the United Kingdom. And that's that's a big step forward. Um, I guess another question is where, where would these suggestions come from ideologically? Would they necessarily come from the right or would they come from the left? There has been this growing anti-monarchy feeling mm. 
from the right. Actually, we think the notion of a republic is owned by kind of like the left of centre. But actually, as there is more of a pressure for public people to uh, speak out on certain Mm. issues, for example, like the environment, uh, you find this kind of populist right energy where they don't like that. And actually... That's a very strong real demographic who would quite happily... So we're basically saying, like, Charles's kind of pro-environmental stance, which is the one thing a lot of people on the left like about the royal family, could be a catalyst for conservative groups to start calling for an abolition of the monarchy? I think it depends what particular way in which you see the monarchy. I mean, um, the Labour government's um, not been sort of historically anti-monarchical, so there's not sort of any assumptions that you get a a political ideological box and you instantly put things into it. Clement Attlee actually said the problem with Britain isn't the monarchy, it's capitalism, right? That's precisely right. Somebody's been on Wikiquote. Somebody has impressively been on Wikiquote. (laughs) What, What is he saying by that? Yeah. I think my suggestion is um, it, it, it shows a number of things. You don't have to be ideologically predisposed, uh, pro you know pro or con uh, monarchy. I think at least looking at the fundamental problems in terms of equity uh, mm. and power distribution in this country, and, and thought probably it's the structures of, of capitalism. Um, and I think the question is, you know, does the monarchy help support that, or actually is it eroding it? So th- there are questions there. So we were talking a little bit about um, attitudes and a sense of public disapproval. Mm. What is wrong with the system? I mean, this is a key question. In what way does the monarchy work? In what way does it fundamentally not serve the national interest? So you have to have uh, public unhappiness, disapproval over something fundamentally not going right, twinned with a a political party capable of taking that sentiment through politically, you know, through to its logical conclusion. So it's not enough um, to bang on about, you know, aristocratic privilege or feudal privilege or I don't like the way the coronation is being put together or even not paying taxes. That's okay, but you need far more than that. You need to demonstrate, you, I, Republicans, uh, how and why the monarchy fails to serve the public interest. Mm. How has it tripped up? And more especially, I think, how has the Crown and Parliament um, and Britain's overall constitutional monarchy more broadly, why is it unsuitable? Why is it an unsuitable form of governance for a liberal democracy like the United Kingdom? And what would the question on the referendum form be? Like, I presume it wouldn't be do you want rid of the cousin fuckers? Like, I, what would what would the actual question be? That would be a tremendously attractive <laughs> referendum question, obviously. I don't know if it gets quite to the heart of the point. Um, I think, the, yeah, obviously, one of the problems with the Brexit question um, in terms of the referendum was perhaps it was it was just too black and white, too yeah, sort of brutally yes or no. Let it yes. be, we need, let we it need be, to get the wording yes, right. Let's get the wording right. Well, again, it's are you getting rid of um, an elected head of state? Are you simply... Looking for a stripped down, slimmed down monarchy? Are you getting rid of the monarchy as a whole? Are you going to retain a little bit of the crown and parliament? So there's a spectrum, I think, mm. of how far you want to go. Mm. Are we just reforming or are we pressing the reset button completely? It is interesting to think about what it could look like. Just returning to your thought about Atlee and how actually the real problem was capitalism. Like if you could decouple the monarch from that astronomical wealth. But then I have seen every Disney movie and that's about a prince or a princess that is thrust into poverty and we've all been raised to think that is terribly wrong and they should get their crown back. Um, yeah, it'd be like Enchanted, where Charles and William have to go through a manhole and they end up in New York. Yeah. But um, I did want to ask you about the unintended mm. consequences of pursuing 
maybe not even necessarily a republic, just reforming, just, you know, entrenching some responsibilities more clearly. Um, and yes, having a conversation about taxation as all public servants should have. Absolutely. So if we simply assume that we're just going to decouple for the, for the minute, we're going to just reduce um, entirely the crown in parliament and we're going to have a very different kind of um, setup. Perhaps your sort of bog standard republic. I think that would work very well on t-shirts, by the way. Bog I heart standard bog, republic. Bog standard bog republic. Let's go for that. Let's go for that. I think one of the unintended consequences is probably where does that power go? Yeah, power shifts. It it rarely vanishes. Uh, it usually finds a back a vacuum. So it's a concentrated pa- power buildup, mm-hmm. uh, po- possibly within Parliament, but more likely where power likes to go, and that's the executive or the Prime Minister. Um, so absent the Crown in Parliament, you could be looking um, at uh, the, the, a lack of checks and balances, if I can put it like that, because the Crown, to some extent, works as a kind of a passive but rather necessary absorber, sort of a modifier. So there's a very big question as to what that sort of post abolitionist um, power base is going to look like? How do you remake that? Um, and if I can just maybe tack one more on, that's, mm-hmm. that's of course undermining much of the soft power that tends typically to be inherent in monarchs all over the world mm. and is especially the case here in Britain. Um, now, the late Queen actually, I think to my mind, wielded this soft power with, with pretty good precision, laser-like precision in, in some cases. Charles has the opportunity to do the same. I've seen a little bit of this. Uh, and I think it's much needed, actually. Politics is, is, is not a lovely place. Obviously, the podcast is, and that we will bring beautiful <laughs> Renaissance thinking to it, naturally. But politics uh, is, is, is not great. It's very shrill. It's increasingly uh, partisan, and sadly, it's very, very ineffective. So a skilled monarch, I think, as a head of state, uh, I would have thought as a sort of vital conduit as as, uh, as somebody who can channel the national interest. Uh, but much more importantly, we're facing terribly intractable gro- global problems that all states are confronting, and why why not add skill there if, if we can? What's a, what's, what does that soft power look like? I mean, one of the ways that soft power kind of manifests itself, potentially uh, on a domestic level, is the sort of binding of the four nations, right? Is is there a sense that the monarchy is maybe kind of holding the United Kingdom together oh, to some extent? absolutely, Nish. I think that's a really good point. I think that there's sort of sinews, if you like, constitutional crown and power sinews that are pulled together. Um, and at this point, I think to, to cut them loose, in addition to some of the forces we've seen um, in, in the last couple of years, um, might actually really push the United Kingdom over into fur- further and possibly unanticipated um, devolutionary areas. Um, and it's it's fine in terms of having, you know, devolution as, as a political um, outcome, but to do it without the soft power um, that sort of binds them together means you're looking at a very different identity. Okay, so the Republic utopia maybe isn't going to happen in my lifetime. Although, actually, I was going to ask you on your timeline... So I'm going to be raving for the Republic at what, 80, 85, 90? How long would it take to do this uh, single issue party, get the public interest? It could be as, you know, as long as it took to to, to shift, um, you know, very difficult intractable issues like apartheid that took generations or it could be incredibly quick like Brexit, which was stunningly quick, I think, in political terms to have the kind of input, input and output. It, it could, I'd say, two generations. And but I guess with Brexit, you're turning around something, a decision that was, though it built, from the end of the Second World War, you're really turning around something from 1975. With this, you're really turning around something, an issue that's sort of not really been examined in the UK 
since the bit, mean, since Oliver like, Cromwell. <laughs> perhaps it's Cromwell part two, though. Perhaps what it is actually, it's 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 looking at something where you, we've always had a, a legacy to some extent. I think of quiet, somewhat pissy, you know, republicanism, saying it's just not the right time. This isn't the right way. This isn't the right form of government. It's not serving our our national interest. So it has it has peaked and troughed. I, I like the idea of like Cromwell to Oliver to Cromwell. <laughs> like I like the idea of the sequel. But I mean, you made a compelling and then there case. There was Charles II. So we're we're <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Twos, you know. We talk about sequels, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're on Charles. It's Charles the Third. We're on Tokyo Drift. <laughs> if, I, if I was to continue your Fast and Furious analogy, he's Charles Three Tokyo Drift. That was obviously the worst one for a start. <laughs> um, but Amelia, like you made a really compelling case, but I honestly, if the monarchy didn't exist, you wouldn't invent it, would you? Like. You wouldn't be like, let's get a family who earn astronomic sums and their main thing will be to waft. I think the most invented thing itself is always tradition. So I can't think of anything that's more fabulously invented wow. than the monarchy. That's, 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 that's clever. That that's smooth. a good answer. That that's a, at last, something useful said on this podcast. Okay, republicanism might, might not get it. So let's talk about reform. That is certainly within our grasping distance and certainly... Um, doable within our lifetime. The things that concern me the most about the monarchy are accountability and transparency. I'm particularly frustrated about uh, offshore accounts. Okay. I'm going to talk about tax loopholes, sure. which strikes me as, as, as the least patriotic thing you can actually ever do is to not give fairly to your own nation, particularly when you rule it. I think it's twofold. It's a wealth problem. Um, in terms of equitable distribution, but also I think it's a comms problem. It's the opacity. It's the mm. it's the complexity of royal finances. So I totally agree that there should be reform. I think the apparatus of secrecy, if you like, um, that surrounds uh, the crown in this respect is not helpful. I think they themselves would probably admit to that. Um, so I think what we need is a call for more accountable spending and to make sure that the kind of spending we see actually does filter through uh, much more um, truly, much more authentically, if you like, into the nation itself. So we need a better understanding of state versus crown spending spending uh, and budgets. But how would you perceive that happening? Would you perceive that happening because as voters we vote it through, are we expecting the royals to just give up some of their powers out of the kindness of their hearts? I mean, that is that is one way. I think the other ways that I would look at it is to make sure that they have what they need to be able to serve the public. So the only people who receive money from the state, from our state, are going to be those who undertake public duties. We want to see those duties. We want to see those in a a manifestly genuine way that actually supports us as as a nation. Um, And also, let's remember that those decisions that have to be taken, they're actually not within the remit of the royal family at all. Decisions about funding, about taxation, including loopholes, are decided by the government, not by the royal family. So let's push the government to make those decisions. Okay, so since we're here doing a brainstorm, it's a safe space. What are three suggestions that we can give King Charlie to his mates? Oh, very nice. C3. (laughs) He's also a DJ that I'll be booking at Ray for the Republic, King Charlie. So there we go. Sounds like the kind of guy that needs velvet curtains. Well, though, King Charlie know? sounds like he's bringing—he's not just bringing his his records to the DJ booth. You need to stop with this line of humour, honestly, because we're going to get in trouble. It's a key theme here. Stop it. it! Actually, stop it! Um, don't you have some thoughts about the going or diamond niche? Well, yes. I mean, I just think in terms of—I I mean, I think that there are things that the crown can do in the short term. I mean. I did think that, you know, Laura Trevelyan demanding King Charles apologise for historic links to the slave trade. I don't think that that is unreasonable. I also think that we were saved by the fact that they're not using the Queen Mother's crown from the slightly odd spectacle 
of Rishi Sunak, a man himself of Indian descent, being the prime minister during a coronation when the regent was wearing a hat with a diamond taken from his country. It will be a shock to people, uh, especially if you studied uh, British history in Britain, that the British weren't just cool legends in India who came back with good memories in the word veranda. But they did, They a chunk of the Kohinoor diamond was in that. So could they start by either giving back the Kohinoor diamond to India, to be fair, India's currently doing pretty well at the moment, or we flogged the Kohinoor diamond to start paying, you know, doctors and nurses. Mate, all the doctors are Indian anyway. Yes. <laughs> that is reparations. Sell the diamonds. Pay the doctors. Sorted. You can have that one for free, King. You can have that one for free. There you go. No, no, please. It's on us. I usually charge my monarchs for ideas, you see. Very nice. Yeah. And jewels. Come on, mate. Amelia, thank you very much. Thank you for uh, your insight and for, as ever, humouring my insistence on comparing being things to the Fast and Furious franchise. (laughs) Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Okay, well, somebody who has taken a much more unambiguous stance uh, on the royal family uh, is uh, Clive Lewis, uh, the Labour MP for Norwich South, former shadow minister and leadership candidate. Clive is a Republican, and he also thinks that public opinion can shift even more on this. Hello, Clive. Welcome to Pod Save the UK. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been listening to it really intently. So, Clive, in terms of, I mean, the long-term goal for a lot of organisations is uh, for Britain to become a republic. In terms of the short term, uh, the campaign that you're specifically um, involved in at the moment is around exemptions. Can you just talk us through the specifics of that? Yeah. So, you know, look, we understand not everyone's going to be in the game for a full-blown republic overnight or even in the near future. But I think a lot of people increasingly understand that reform of the monarchy is pretty critical. And I think the kind of one of the low pieces of hanging through for any kind of reform is about stopping the royal family from the exemptions to laws and taxes that they currently have. So we know that since 1967, around about 160 different pieces of legislation, the royal family have been exempted from. And they've also been exempted from a large number of taxes. And and these are things which we all pay. Uh, and we all have to be uh, abide by the law. And I think it's if you kind of break that, it's either a universal constant or it isn't. So the campaign we've got is a petition calling uh, on government, calling on the monarchy to basically be stopped from being exempted on those taxes uh, and those laws, because it feels fundamentally un-British and wrong for that to happen. And that's what the campaign is about. Talk to us a little bit about your feelings as a Republican, because, I mean, I would say that you don't strike me as particularly conventional Republican, largely because you're a member of Parliament and there's not a huge amount of Republican sentiment coming out of the House of Commons. I think I think even makes it even stranger. I mean, obviously, there are lots of people in the military who do hold Republican views, but Mm. they probably care them very much. No, I think I think, look, um, 
what happened a couple of weeks ago, the Guardian asked me to write another article about um, the royal family, about monarchy. And they sent me the challenge about how do you reform? Mm. Uh, and I thought that that was a really good way of coming to this because I think there is a public appetite for reform of the monarchy. It was on the front page of the Daily Mail. I know the FT and other publications are interested. I think there's a sense that with what's happening in the Commonwealth, with countries you know, choosing to opt out and become Republican, I think there's a fear that with the, at, with the end of the Queen's reign, that King Charles may not be able to hold it all together. So I think there's this kind of belief that we have to have a kind of razzmatazz, showbiz, kind mm. of black water uh, ceremony for the coronation. And then we can talk about some kind of modest reform to bring this into the 21st century. So um, I think reform's on the cards. Obviously, I would like to go a lot further. I'd like to have a democratically elected head of state. Um, and I think there's lots of people in this country that probably agree with that. But I think there's an argument to be made for that. But there's also an argument to be made for reform, which is probably where we'll end up, um, given this country loves to make you know, some kind of compromise on this issue. I imagine that's where we'll be. For me, I think the issue about the royal family is the fact that it's symbolic. Mm. And symbols matter in politics. A lot of people say this doesn't matter. It's just pomp and ceremony and fluff. But it does matter because... If you can have a royal family that can exempt itself from the law, you can be born into this position. Um, you can avoid paying taxes. In fact, you can change the law to exempt you from paying taxes that we all have to pay. Then that sends a message out there to the country that this is acceptable. And the people who are in the best position to then kind of uh, benefit from that are the super rich, the wealthy, mm. and may not be able to kind of circumvent the law, although they do make a good attempt at doing that. They can then say, well, do you know what? It's probably OK if we send our money offshore, if we don't pay our taxes, if we're able to lobby and get our way and, and be more powerful within our society. So it is important. It is symbolic. And I think the fact that you can have a billionaire hereditary head of state at the same time as three million of his subjects and their children in abject poverty, I think that tells you a lot about the state of the country. And I don't think it's symbolism that the vast majority of the people in this country would feel comfortable with if they sat down and thought about it for any prolonged period. Clive, can I ask you, have you always been a Republican or have you sort of come around, has, has something happened to bring you to this position? I didn't really have an opinion. I would have been one of those who probably didn't really care that much. I thought it was symbolic, you know, it's part of the British state. That's what it is. But I think over the last few, after over the last kind of six, seven years, being in Parliament, being in politics, looking at the vast disparities of wealth, realising that Parliament actually doesn't really have any power, despite all the kind of arguments of taking back control. I sit in a Parliament that doesn't have any real sovereignty. When they talk about parliamentary sovereignty, what they actually mean is the Prime Minister has sovereignty, and that sovereignty is given to the Prime Minister via the monarch. Uh, we, uh, don't, as parliamentarians, don't actually have real power and once you begin to realise that, you begin to realise it isn't just symbolic, although that's very important. It's also practical. Um, and you begin to untie and unpick. And it's like the emperor's clothes. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Um, I guess the other thing is having a young daughter. You know, I kind of I, I tell my daughter, she's five, that she can do anything in the world, that there's nothing that she can't put her mind to that she can achieve. Now, I know that that's true, and it's also a lie at the same time because of structural sexism, racism, but also the royal family tells everyone, and 
tells me that actually some people are more equal than others. And I'm afraid that that is the reality of the society and the economy that we live in. And for me, I want to be able, I want my daughter, I don't want her to be a subject. I want her to be able to be one day, if she wants, the head of state uh, of this country, if this country wanted her to be. And, and that's not possible. So there's a, a limit to what she can achieve. And if we're all born equal, all created equal, um, and we're, we should all be able to rise uh, through our democracy into the position that we're best able to uh, you know, contribute something to, then then that makes the monarchy a lie, really, and, and a lie to that notion. So if the monarchy is at total odds with equality, why isn't the party of equality, the Labour Party, doing more on this? It's a very good question. I think, you know, if you talk about this, especially during uh, the death of the Queen, there was a sense that this was off limits. You weren't allowed to talk about it. There was real peer pressure, real social pressure in terms of the kind of you know, massive bombardment that we saw from the BBC, from the, the political British establishment, basically saying, sit down, shut up. It's a change of monarch. You're going to like it. And those don't need to be quiet. That you got real... told off, didn't you, Clive? I think if, I, if memory serves, I think you still spoke up anyway and got really told <laughs> off. I did. And I had to thought, think long and hard about it because, because obviously... In my party, you can get in trouble for kind of speaking out on things that you're not meant to. But I kind of thought, what's the point of me if, you know, and, and what's the point of having elected representatives if they're meant to represent in a democracy the view of millions of people? And there are millions of Republicans in this country, mm. or at least millions of people that want to see some kind of reform of, of, our, of our political institutions. And I felt that they had to say something, because if I didn't, who would? So I did. I said something. I got some I got some of the kind of predictable backlash. But I also got a lot of people saying, thank goodness that someone has said this. There are a lot of people out there that believe this. So I think one of the reasons why the Labour Party is probably struggling with this is because it's struggling on lots of things which we call a part of the culture war. Uh, the culture war, from my perspective, starts, originates with the rise of empire and a small elite of people who wanted to package up a notion of what it was to be British uh, uh, and what that meant. And that was sent out across the empire and it, and it still impacts on people across the world today. And they've wanted to hold on to that notion. It's a very elitist notion of what it means, a very narrow notion of what it means to be British and what British culture is. And what's happened in the post-war period with the decline of empire, with the rise of popular culture uh, and mass media, they've been on the defensive for decades. And the royal family are kind of a, a redoubt, a buttress. Uh, and that's why it's so important to them. And the reason the culture wars are becoming so aggressive is that it's a rearguard action. This is what they're concerned about, that society is changing and they're going to lose control of it. And what the monarchy represents is part of that culture war where the monarchy represents the traditions and the values that they espouse and want to hold on to and want to impose on the rest of us. Now, the reason the Labour Party is struggling with that is because under first past the post, there are a small number of swing marginals where they decided from the focus groups that going down that path and, and challenging those issues isn't going to play well with that demographic. Politicians don't tend to move on their own and say, do you know what? We think reform is necessary to improve the situation. We're going to do this. What tends to happen is that the public come up and say, we demand change. And then you find it's easier for elected representatives to kind of move into that space and 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 you know enact that change. 
So in terms of demanding change, Clive, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're probably not going to be at a street party putting up bunting on Saturday. What are your plans for the coronation? I don't think I'm going to end up at a street party, hopefully. But I've got a little five-year-old and she's been asked to go to school this Friday dressed up as a, as a, as a king or a queen by her school. What do I do for her? <laughs> this is She loves golden carriages. She loves princesses. She loves Cinderella. She loves those... This is for her. It's like, my gosh, I'm going to go to school as a king or a queen. I haven't told her yet. She's going to go as King Charles I with her head on the (laughs) 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 But don't you think, Clive, like that's one of the issues about, and listen, I'm a Republican, but like we... (laughs) We can come across as killjoys sometimes. Like that is a genuine issue that we have. Like, why can't we have a bit of fun? So here's a proposal for you, Clive. Rave for the Republic. What do you think? <laughs> yeah? Yeah, but it'll probably get busted by the police. <laughs> if you do that. But I mean, yeah, rave for the Republic. No, I think rave for the Republic is fantastic. That's the problem. When you're a Republican, you normally find yourself on the back foot arguing for something to end against something. And I think one of the things that we need to do is that we need to understand what it is about the monarchy that attracts people to it. And there is something about the pomp. So it's about making us feel good about ourselves. It's about meant to be about what is best about this country, what is noble about this country, what it is to be British and all the values that we espouse and, and, and really appreciate. I don't think that's the monarchy, but I think we can construct something which takes those those notions, those feelings, those emotions, those symbols, and creates something which genuinely reflects and represents the things that we hold dear. There will be a lot of people out protesting, or we believe there will be a lot of people out protesting potentially on Saturday. Are you concerned about the fast-track legislation? The laws include 12-month prison sentences for protesters who block roads, uh, an unlimited fine for people who lock onto others or objects or buildings, and also giving the police powers to stop and search protesters that they suspect are aiming to cause the sort of slightly nebulously described disruption. It feels intimidatory, if nothing more than that. But I think, yes, it's sending a massive signal that the state will use the full it's the full power available to it to suppress those who want to peacefully demonstrate against on against the king and the coronation. And I think that's something we've seen during um, the mourning period of the Queen and, the, and the, the burial of the Queen and the Queen lying in state, we know there were many people who were dragged away. We know that the police you know, were arresting people for holding blank placards. You know, either we're a democracy. I mean, we all, the left often get shouted down for cancel culture, but actually the masters of cancel culture are the establishment and the right of politics, in my opinion. And actually, as Democrats, what we're saying is surely... We have the right to be able to protest, to be able to speak our minds. We should be able to have this discussion, this debate, to talk about what our democracy looks like, who our head of state is, without being intimidated by the state, without being arrested unnecessarily, and without people shouting us down, shutting us down, or telling us to leave the country, as I've been told to on numerous times. Mm. There is a crisis of democracy. It's not just in this country. It's across Western democracies. It's not getting better. The climate crisis, the rise of authoritarianism, um, you know, perma crisis that we're now seeing, the droughts. There are two ways forward. More repression, like this government believes is the way forward, or we deepen democracy and make it stronger. I'm for the latter. And I think many people who will be out protesting this weekend would also uh, probably agree with that as well. 
I think if Rishi Sunak was here, he would say, Clive, you had me at more repression. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us and uh, have a wonderful uh, time for no specific reason this weekend. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to be uh, spending Saturday trying to make sure I time a shit for the exact moment of the proclamation. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about two topics that go hand in hand, the Conservative Party and the consistent use of racist language. Okay, so apart from the coronation this week, uh, the other major news story is that uh, it's local election time. Uh, So the day uh, after we record, so we're recording this on a Wednesday, and on Thursday, voters across England are going to be heading to polling stations to decide who will be in charge of local services in more than 200 areas and to elect four new mayors in Bedford, Leicester, Mansfield and Middlesbrough. So if you're listening to this on Thursday, you've got until 10pm to vote. You can stop listening to us for a second. Just get out there. there. Go and get into that polling booth and do your duty. Oh, and don't forget your photo ID. Don't forget your photo ID. Uh, We are going to be watching very closely to see what effect these new rules around voter ID has on turnout. There have been some accusations that the government is using it as a way to effectively suppress some voters, particularly disenfranchising already marginal groups. So we'll be keeping an eye on that as we proceed. Yeah, a story that caught my eye around the elections this week is that research from Hope Not Hate, who are an anti-racist group, revealed that five Conservative councillors who are standing have previously been suspended over allegations of racism and Islamophobia, including one who suggested banning mosques. Wow. He obviously doesn't know how religion works. (laughs) I don't know if you hear, but like you can actually pray at home. I don't think anyone's explained that to him yet. Actually, don't. Just don't bother don't explaining. Explain it's, no, it's pointless. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think it's a huge surprise uh, that we're seeing this kind of rhetoric coming from local Conservative politicians when their frontline leadership mm. are saying things like this. Put simply, excessive, uncontrolled migration threatens to cannibalise the compassion that marks out the British people. And those crossing tend to have completely different lifestyles and values to those in the UK. Can she confirm that this this bill will indeed get rid of foreign rapists and murderers? People who are coming here illegally are breaking our laws. They are criminals and they don't have a right to be here. That is at odds with our values of upholding the rule of law. Okay, so you heard there from Robert Jenrick, Lee Anderson, Suella Braverman, all using some frankly shocking language Mm. to talk about the government's illegal migration bill, which is, of course, the centrepiece of their campaign to stop the boats. Uh, They're trying to discourage migrants from making uh, channel crossings to claim asylum. Um, I thought that, I think the quote from Robert Jenrick which is the first person you heard there, who's the uh, immigration minister, echoed Enoch Powell's rivers of blood speech. Uh, I think that the suggestion that um, there are cultures that are incompatible mm. with British values is very, very serious and is essentially sort of dog whistle racism. Oh, totally. Is... It's monstering, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's total us versus them. It's othering whole swathes of people from vastly different backgrounds. Yeah. And it has like real life ramifications. I don't think it's, 
don't think we're exaggerating when we say that our whole life has been shaped around this rhetoric and yeah. it's really, really dangerous. Yeah. I mean, and it is essentially throwing some chum towards the kind of sharks on the very mm. far right of British politics. Well, best case scenario, they don't fully understand what the real world impact is. Worst case is that they don't really care. I mean, I yeah. come from, that's why I have this slightly threatening accent where everything I sound. <laughs> I don't think anything you say sounds threatening. Oh, you don't think? No, I think but I, I did... famously am not a Daily Mail reader. <laughs> but... <laughs> I then, so I was born in Barking and I went to school in Dagnum. For any of our listeners who don't know their area, it's a London borough. It's called Barking and Dagnum. It's very working class and it was once known as the race hate capital of Britain because it has always had this underlying problem with the far right. I mean, when I was growing up, it was literally your choices are the Labour Party or the BMP. Yeah. <laughs> Those are your choices. And the thing is, it's like a lot of these politicians, they they will try and say, oh, well, we're just speaking hard truths. But I don't think they actually realise that when those that language, it, it filters down to people who are like, you know, impoverished, struggling, and actually every day out on the street, they don't read it as just like, these are just words. They genuinely see it as a, as a really big war, really. And, you know, I always say about the BNP, you can't have a chat with someone from the BNP. Do you know what no. I mean? They don't want to have a chat. They want to beat you to a yeah, pulp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's kind yeah. of what they want to do. Yeah. So Let me raise this first point. Oh, you seem to have smashed me in the face. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good sir. Well, well what do you think about this? Like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really quite work. And I think that, I mean, aside from the fact that growing up in that environment really taught me that politics is life and death. Yeah. And really, I think we need to think about when we hear all these politicians talking, it is life or death for some people. Those people on those boats face death yeah. wherever they have come from so I think that that has been lost but just the impact just the impact on the average person is is profound and I, I genuinely really fear for the state of things and I mean some of the rhetoric just to briefly take a kind of sidebar away from the migration debate which we obviously need to get back to but just briefly to say some of the rhetoric it's not even just that they're not spreading hard truths it's that they're actively spreading misinformation in an attempt to appease this core of voters Suella Braverman's comments about British Pakistani men being responsible for the majority of grooming gangs is actually contradicted by her own office's data the Home, yeah. home Office's data shows that that is not the case so it isn't just that they're not speaking hard truths. They're actually actively propagating falsehoods that are deeply racist. And it's not just, it's obviously not just us, the wet leftists of the <laughs> podcasting community that don't think that. They've they've had grief from their own party. Yeah, there are conservatives yeah, yeah. that have been speaking out about yeah, this. Yeah, Baroness Farsi has been talking about it for ages. I, she really is a one-woman show sometimes. I feel sorry for her. How yeah. she gets up, keeps going. I'm going to get some motivational tips from Baroness Farsi about how to get up each morning. Um, I actually got an email from uh, Raymond Shishti's office. He was emailing uh, a range of journalists to kind of share his distress at what has been going on and what Braverman's been saying. A quote in that email said, oh, the Home Secretary is emboldening the far right by pointing the finger at and ethnic so groups. And I mean, he's this is not an insignificant I mean, he's the MP for Gillingham and Raynham and he was a former Tory leadership candidate as well. It's pretty serious stuff. And I mean, there was Jonathan Gullis, who I wouldn't necessarily have associated to with anti-racism as a platform, to be fair to him. Uh, even he had this to say. 
I don't feel comfortable with the mentioning of the values. Uh, I don't think that was appropriate, nor was it right. I think the Home Secretary does have a point around the criminality, and if I explain what I mean by that, it is perfectly plausible and reasonable to suggest that people who are coming from Albania, who, uh, you know, can get a flight for £28, but are choosing to spend 4500 to be smuggled illegally into the United Kingdom, uh, are effectively coming to avoid checks at the border, to avoid having to present themselves to our border force. And we, it is very clear that the Vietnamese cannabis gangs that were once very prevalent across this country have been taken over by Albanian gangs. So I think it's perfectly right to say that there is a coarse criminality within this. We know that the people have entered the country, sadly, who have been linked with terrorism uh, in other parts of the country, uh, sorry, the world as, uh, as well. So ultimately, I think that there is a point to be made, but I don't think that the values and the broad stroke uh, that was brushed to everyone was right or reasonable. Yeah, I mean, they've even managed to sort of upset Gullis. I mean, they just picked every nightmare, like Tory night, terrorists, yeah. cannabis, <laughs> foreign, like <laughs> every single bing, 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 bing. It was like bingo, Tory nightmare bingo. But so look, there is a kind of, the depressing thing about all of this is that it does feel like this is part of a political game. And once again, real people, mm. which I think we can't overstate this, but these people on these boats, these are human beings yeah. that we're sort of casually dehumanising. There's an extent to which it is Rishi Sunak trying to throw some uh, throw some chum to the kind of hardest right of the party. Um, the uh, A poll from March the 9th found that illegal migration had become the second biggest concern among people who voted Conservative at the last election, ranking below cost of living and above cutting NHS surgery waiting lists. Yeah. And I think that Rishi Sudak and the Tories are potentially in danger of going down the road that the US Republicans have gone down, which is allowing their manifesto to be dictated by their own supporters, not necessarily thinking about how this is translating to the public. Fine, it might play well with a, some people, but yeah. for the a actual people out on the street, we have friendships, colleagues who are from different heritage. Some of them might be have migrants themselves. Like, this is toxic for how we live our everyday lives. And I just, I, I wonder as well, you know, we've been talking a lot about the coronation and this role of, the role of patriotism and being proud of your country. Like, who do we want to be as Britain? You know, yeah. Gordon Brown wrote a piece quite recently where he talked about Britain being a leader in human rights across the world. You know, some would argue, well, maybe not quite a leader, but nonetheless, a pretty good yeah, record. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was something to be really proud of and we're just chucking it all away. Even the language that we use, you know, if you say illegal, people have a very sort of visceral reaction. Whereas if you say refugees, yeah. we can see from polling data, people actually care quite a lot. We're quite a compassionate nature, yeah. you know, talking about cannibalising compassion. Well, they're cannibalising our compassion as well. Just before we leave this subject, the only thing I want to ask you about is that as much as this has been a constant in the last, I don't know, however long it's been in politics in this country, but certainly post-financial crisis and in the last kind of 13, 14 years, we've seen a casual demonisation of migrants uh, at the same time as massive cuts made to public spending. And we've seen politicians repeatedly say that the reason your public services are struggling is because of the strain put on them by illegal immigrants and asylum seekers as a cover for that. Now, the only key difference here is that Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman are the front for this policy. And I wanted to know how you felt, because I think I know how I feel about it, brackets, not positive, <laughs> that it's now British Indians who are fronting some of these incredibly unpleasant policies. And Did rhetoric. you see that Indians are now the second largest group on the boat, by the way? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary. <laughs> it's not just the fact that I, I feel that these two 
uh, and amongst others, are throwing other ethnic minorities under the bus. They're now throwing their own community off boats. It's, into the sea. Yeah, into the sea. <laughs> yeah. You know, how do you feel about that? I mean, look... <laughs> There is no upside with any of this. But as you know, for a long time, I've been harbouring some resentment about this notion of representation and about how it's going to save the world. I think it's a convenient way to think about things. Um, I think it doesn't, it's shallow, it's sticking plaster, as some might say. Um, And in a way, perhaps this could signal the end of it. Because if there are, you know, the first person of colour, Prime Minister, I don't know. I don't feel any more represented. I don't think that's necessarily something that is a historical landmark to be proud of. I mean, I I do think representation and symbols matter. And I think that's my problem with it, is that if you look at people like Priti Patel, Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak, I think it's the symbolism is significant. And I think the symbolism is what I find so profoundly troubling about those three, for example. I think what they symbolise is that you can get ahead in British politics as an ethnic minority as long as you are willing to throw other marginalised communities and potentially your own (laughs) community under the bus. You know, I I consistently am told and I'm asked every interview I give about how I feel about the high-profile British Asians. But I think the the symbolism is so troubling when you have a British Asian Home Secretary who is herself propagating racist mistruths about the British Asian community. That's kind of racist that you even have to answer that question. The foundation of lefty politics is this idea of like solidarity and shared community. Yeah. And for a long time, conservatism wasn't just about the hyper-individual. That's kind of a neoliberal thing. Yeah. So maybe, you know, as long as representation is coming from that side of the camp, we... we We can't expect it to do anything for any of us. I don't know. But the thing is, maybe we expect more from our ethnic minority politicians. Maybe that in itself is racist. Nah, it's still there. Well, that's nearly it for our first ever episode of Pod Save the UK. But before we go, we'd like to thank all of you who have already been in touch uh, to wish us luck since we launched these social channels. We do want you to be a big part of Pod Save the UK and tell us what the UK needs saving from. So do tweet us at Pod Save the UK. Chad Eric Burns has been in touch uh, and given us his wish list. Uh, he wants the UK saving from Brexit, racism, itself, old white men, and the conservative propensity to career towards fascism. That's a very spicy list. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely going to do our best, Chad. (laughs) We're working on it. (laughs) Um, Every week we're going to be handing out two shiny awards. We are all about the good vibes here at Pod Save the UK. One of them is very, very desirable. The other one is maybe um, not not so much. so, Nish, why don't you kick things off by naming your PSUK Villain of the Week? Well, the PSUK Villain of the Week uh, is the, uh, I guess, the villain of quite a few weeks uh, in the last <laughs> couple of years. Uh, it's Liz Truss, uh, who is currently disputing part of a £12,000 bill that's been sent to her by the Cabinet Office relating to her use of the Grace and Favour Chevening House when she was Foreign Secretary. So this is even before she was Prime Minister. This is back when she was Foreign Secretary. Uh, The bill includes covering missing items, including, and the thing that seems to have caught a lot of the paper's eyes, is 
bathrobes. All right. 12 grand's worth of bath... I mean, I'm assuming the bathrobes are the smallest item on the bill because otherwise <laughs> Cheatling's got two nicer bathrobes. You know, robes. I sometimes take a bath when I'm feeling really bad about something I did. Well, this was before she was Prime Minister. So, I mean, I don't even know what, what she'd done before that. Guilt it was baths. last summer when she was in the middle of fighting the Conservative leadership campaign uh, against Rishi Sudak. And she's sort of disputing it on the grounds that it covers the use of chevening facilities and catering while she was there working with officials. So she's saying it was, it, she's once again falling back onto the age old Conservative excuse of it was a work event. But you know what I would say? I would say if you're Liz Truss and you blew a £30 billion hole in the public finances, and since leaving office, you've earned £65,000 from one speaking engagement. Cover the 12 grand. You know, I, as you know, I think people do have the right to party. <laughs> I believe the Beastie Boys said that best. Um, but one thing I cannot abide is a cheapskate. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If you're going to have a party, pay for the party and own it. Yes, it was 12 grand. It was the hen weekend to end all hen weekends. <laughs> Me and my other political leaders doing Jägerbombs. <laughs> Um, but Coco, let's not end on a sour note. Yes. Uh, uh, let's end on our PSUK hero of the week. Yes, so I've got the best job. I absolutely love it when I get to come across stories of just, I don't know, just regular people doing more than the politicians seem to be doing. And so this week's shout out goes to Poppy Murray. She is the creator of a campaign called the Be Lads campaign. So in the aftermath of Sarah Everard, understandably, we were looking more at street harassment and ultimately violence on the street against women. And she directed a campaign at men to say, hey, look, you can be part of the change. And so she came up with some advice. And that advice is one, be, be visible, E, Ease the tension by making a phone call. This is all stuff men could be doing if they spot a woman being harassed on the street. L, look away, don't stare. A, be an active bystander. D, distance yourself. Or S, suggest walking your friends home. And altogether, that is being a lad, a proper lad. Um, the campaign has gone far and wide. Um, football teams are looking at adopting it. Even local policing forces are. It's grassroots activism and it's going smashing, so... Big up to Poppy Murray. Okay, it might be ridiculously optimistic to think that we can save the UK, but we'll be back to give it a go again next week. If you want to get in touch with us, please do tweet us at PodSaveTheUK or email us at psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. If you can't wait till next week, try our bonus episode, which is already on the feed, where we meet the founding fathers of Crooked Media, the presenters of Pod Save America. And it is well worth your time, if for no other reason other than to see Coco Khan explain to three very confused Americans the phrase, chat shit, get banked. We'll see you next week. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson and me, Nish Kumar. The music you're hearing, that's by Vasilis Fotopoulos and our funky show art was designed by Bernarda Serna. 
Our studio engineer was David Dargahi, video titles by Around Midnight and video editing by David Kaplowitz. From Reduced Listening, our executive producer is Joby Waldman with production support from Sarah Kenny and Annie Keats-Thorpe. Keep that music on a loop, David. We could be here a while. This might go full Gwyneth Paltrow at the Oscars. From Crooked Media, our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our development executive producers are Seamus Murphy-Mitchell and Sandy Gerard, and Ari Schwartz is our development producer. Thanks to Julia Beach, Ashley Simon, Adia Hill and Amelia Montooth at Crooked for all their work on marketing and social media. Production support from Leo Duran, Kyle Seglin, Matt DeGroote and Madeline Herringer at Crooked Media. And many thanks to Podcast Discovery's Matt Deegan, Josh Divney, Matt Hill and Tom Neenan for their marketing support. And PR support from Becca Newson and Imogen Turner of Carver PR. I'm bound to have forgotten someone, but they are now kicking us out the studio. Get in touch with an idea of what you think the UK needs saving from. Send us a WhatsApp message or even a voice note. We might play it out loud if we like it. The number is 07514 644 572. That's again 07514 644 572. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube, follow us on Twitter and TikTok at Pod Save the UK and hit subscribe for new shows every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.